Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkleys. Today's podcast is about killer stories, literally. Our panel of journalists digs into why true crime stories are so compelling and why they're having a huge moment in podcasting. This talk was recorded at the State Library of New South Wales on July 26 as a satellite event of Storyology, our 2018 journalism festival. Here's Lauren Katsakidis to kick things off. This is an important time for journalism. A thriving, trusted media is vital to ensure a fair and democratic society. Great journalism holds the powerful to account. It changes laws and it changes lives. At the Walkleys, we're focused on playing our part in helping our journalists tell the stories that matter. You can find out more about the Walkley Awards, our philanthropic events, and what else we offer at walkleys.com. While you're there, you also might like to make a donation, however small, it's tax deductible. Your support helps us do many things, like host free events and media talks like this one. If you enjoy tonight's conversation, consider signing up to our email newsletter. It's the best way to stay up to date with our events and stories, so just go to walkleys.com slash subscribe. For the journalists in the room, or those with of you with journo friends, a reminder that the Walkley Awards are now open and the deadline for entries is August 31. Now, just some quick housekeeping before we welcome tonight's panel. Please keep your phones on silent. You can also join in on the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Walkleys or hashtag Storyology18. Tonight we've got a bit of blockbuster, a conversation about true crime stories and why they're having a moment in podcasts. Why are crime stories, mysteries and cold cases so compelling and why do they work so well in our headphones? We have a great panel in store for you tonight who will share with you their experiences making great crime podcasts. Our lovely moderator Claire Harvey will introduce tonight's panellists, Alan Clark, Nicole Hogan and Marianne Harris. Claire Harvey is the deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph, Australia's biggest selling newspaper, where she also writes a column. Claire started her career at The Australian in 1994 as a copy girl. She worked at The Australian for a decade, covering various rounds, including politics, and spending three years as a New Zealand correspondent, where she also covered the Pacific Islands, before working for two years as a senior writer and columnist at the New Zealand Herald. In 2008, she returned to Australia as a senior writer and columnist at the Sunday Telegraph before becoming deputy editor in 2012. Please welcome Claire and our panellists. Thanks, Lauren, and thanks very much for having me. I can um, tell already that there's some keen storytellers in the audience, and I'm sure you guys have got lots of questions. So I really want you to help me guide this conversation and I want us to talk about the things that you're interested in. I want it to be practical and informative for you as well as celebrating the great work of these journalists. I work for News Corp Australia which is discovering podcasting in a big way. We've all dipped our toes in the water but now we're learning how to turn podcasting into something that might even be a stream of revenue for us which is great for the future of journalism. That's the big golden ticket I guess for podcasting. How can we turn it into something that helps journalists pay their wages and pay their mortgages. That's something I'd like to talk to these guys about as well tonight. Journalism is something that we all passionately believe in, we've all spent our careers in, and it's, I think, wonderful that podcasting, as well as being a renaissance in radio, which is whose death has been predicted many times over the years, is also expanding the community of journalists to include many, many more people than we could have ever imagined. As it turns out, and as I suspect we always knew, there are storytellers everywhere in our community, and podcasting is a wonderfully democratic way in which stories can get out there. It's very easy to upload a podcast to iTunes and you don't need to make money from it. 
personally, I think if uh, we can find ways to ensure that podcasting is a part of the future of journalism, paid journalism, I'd love that to be the case. Jo- jobs for journalists are good for all of us. So I'm going to start by introducing Marianne Harris, who's the host of New Ideas online podcast, New Idea Investigates. Marianne's a very experienced television reporter, and she's hosted a, quite a remarkable series of interviews. She's, I've listened to a few of them, not all, but the one, two, the two that were really remarkably compelling were about a young woman called Emma, who disappeared and, and was murdered quite violently, and a young man called Nick Velianovsky, who, who disappeared as well and has never been heard from since. It's a, quite a chilling mystery. The theories that are out there are that, yes, he could have taken his own life, it's a possibility, or yes. that he was the victim of an accidental death, you know, yes. or that he met with foul play, or that he's still alive. But to even hear yes. those theories, uh, yes. it, surely as a, as a mum, that must break your heart. Yes, we go through them on a daily basis. But the thing is, for him to have died or committed suicide, or we haven't found anything. And as a mother, I cannot accept that he's gone without any concrete evidence. At the same time, you know, if he has passed, I prefer to know that than go through this every day. At least then we can accept it. But for me to accept that, I've got to have some sort of evidence. And there's been nothing, nothing, nothing at all. So I live in hope. The whole family lives in hope and prayer. People have said to me that you must move on with life. And I can't do that till I've got something I can't do that. I can't move on. This is my life now. Clark is an investigative reporter with ABC True Crime. He's been pursuing for, for many years the story of 17-year-old Mark Haynes, whose body was found on train tracks near Tamworth in New South Wales. He was dead, but the mystery was whether he'd been run over by a train or whether he'd died before arriving at that scene. Alan brought, I guess, to life the incredible voices of Mark's family, other people in the town who knew him. He's come to some quite startling conclusions of his own in the podcast and it's a really remarkable story. I'd I'd urge you to listen to it. They said there's been an accident. Mark's been found on railway tracks. Just outside Tamworth, a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy is dead. I just said, oh, Mark, you know, it just broke me. I, uh, I cried. Uh, not Mark. Why Mark? Not Mark. He was gone. Is it suicide? Misadventure? Or something more sinister? Well, what we didn't see was any blood. And under his head there was a towel, it was a white towel. And we picked up a comb and a pink cigarette lighter. And that's why I said, no, I'm sorry, you could not drive a car. No way. The, the jigsaw puzzles didn't fit. A million questions, why, how, who, what. A country police investigation overshadowed by the politics of race. You know how it is. Young Aboriginal men, they just walk away, lie down on railway tracks and wait to get hit by a freight train. That's actually their answer. That was their story, you know what I mean? But it wasn't our story. Her family on a 30-year fight for justice. So I just done what any uh, family would do for their loved ones. Question what has happened. 
I'm Alan Clark, and I want to introduce you to Unravel, a new podcast from the ABC that follows journalists like me as we investigate unsolved crimes. I've spent the past five years investigating the suspicious death of Aboriginal teenager Mark Haynes in Tamworth back in 1988, and I think I'm close to finding some answers. It was foul play, and it was a cover-up right from the word go. I said, well, where was you? Where was you when uh, my nephew was found dead? I'll fight every one of you fools, one at a time or all at once, I don't care. We don't call ourselves vigilantes. We're here in search of the truth, and still are. He hasn't given up. 30 years later. I just wish, I just wish he'd fight, he'd get his answers. I just want him to have peace. I want my dad, please. So I'll just ask you one last time. Did you have anything to do with Mark's death? Join me on the journey and subscribe to Unravel wherever you get your podcasts or download the ABC Listen app. Nicole Hogan works very closely with me in the Telegraph's newsroom. We sit a few desks apart and I had watched Nicole work for several months on something which I thought was going to be the, the, a series of quickfire podcasts about some fascinating unsolved crimes. The first of those was so compelling and Nicole made such amazing progress that that turned into a, a multi-part podcast that has changed the way crime is policed in New South Wales. It was called Eight Minutes. It was about the very violent and mysterious death of David Breckenridge. And in pulling at the threads of this unsolved murder, Nicole uncovered some quite remarkable things about the way the police had done their job. And the result has been that the Homicide Squad has completely transformed the way it's going to investigate cold cases. So it's, again, a, a remarkable listen. And for most of all, I think, for the grief and dignity and willingness to cooperate of David's family. Oh, I, I loved him and I lost him and somebody took him and nothing's been done. I don't, I don't know what happened. He, he met up with Hannah. That's basically, that's the last time we saw David. Look, I, I think that the fact that within the first couple of days we had no firm line of inquiry, I knew that it was going to be a challenging case. David had probably had his spinal cord severed in the first blow and that he had been rendered completely useless. For some homicides, they can be uh, extremely brutal attacks and there may, in some cases, be a, a clear purpose behind that. You know, it may be about sending a message. I'm Nicole Hogan and this is 8 Minutes, the unsolved murder of David Breckenridge. In this podcast we will follow the police investigation, look at what the unsolved homicide squad has done so far, what the impact has been on David's family and friends and appeal to you, the listener, to help us catch a killer. Nobody dies over two ecstasy pills and a couple of lines of coke. That's a very personal thing, to attack someone's head. So whenever a boy gets drunk at the pub, they punch each other's face. It's a very emotional thing. They don't punch each other's bodies. 
How could someone hate Dave that much? We wanted answers, yeah, straight away. And they didn't come. That was something I had to come to grips to because I knew enough about police process that they're going to trace back steps and that I cost mates to Dave at whatever time that that probably they were the first person they needed to rule out. And I was like, I'm a fucking suspect in a murder case. I just have to say, I hope you go to hell. Stephen and Karen Breckenridge should be wishing their son David a happy 29th birthday today. Instead, they're searching for his killers. Anyone with information is urged to call Crime Stoppers. Samantha Armitage, 7 News. I don't want to die not knowing what happened to David. This is a special investigation by The Daily Telegraph. To help us catch a killer, go to dailytelegraph.com.au. There's a common feeling in in mainstream media that one of the existential problems that we have in attracting and retaining our audiences is that they don't like too much violent content. That although we like covering murders and violent crime because we think it's important and because often it's uh, it's what people are talking about, that that content can make some of our readers turn away. It's too confronting for them. Podcasting seems to turn that on its head. Why is that? Why have people engaged so strongly with podcasts, particularly those about violent crimes, and why are women into them? Well, it's interesting, actually. There's been um, quite a bit of science now behind why they are so popular, and it's fascinating why women are particularly... Now, if I look at the audience now, I'd say the majority are females. There's an aspect of wanting to know what could happen. One of the most powerful emotions is fear, And I think that podcasting lets you experience this fear, but from a distance. Mm. And there's also a part of women wanting to anticipate what could happen. There's also another reasoning that there's a puzzle to be solved. And particularly with podcasting, I think that a lot of the audience want to feel like they're part of the investigation. I don't know, do you have the same? I think so too, and I think it's the fact that women love true crime and drama, and I think they love the intrigue and the mystery, but they also love the stories that they can follow, you know, that lead them to hope for the victim's family and I think that empathy that women do feel for for victim's families you know has them willing for some sort of resolution and I think if you can keep them interested in the story that does have mystery and intrigue you do sort of still have them at the end wanting hope you know hoping with the family that they'll get some answers of some kind Uh, I think that's what keeps women so interested in in podcasts particularly crime ones. Alan, what got you interested in podcasting in the first place? Do you remember what the first podcast was that you listened to and and what it was about? The first podcast was Serial, actually, that I fully sort of listened to the whole range of it. Before that, it was sort of podcasts from TV shows that put their stuff online or radio or Radio National, actually. So actually listening to a narrative sort of podcast like Serial, it, it felt so revolutionary. And I was just so excited by the idea of parlaying journalism into this sort of, you know, this beautiful narrative, but with really old school journalism techniques. I just thought, wow, that's a really interesting idea. But I never actually thought of or saw myself in that podcast space. I've never really worked in radio. I've mostly worked in television, actually. So when I was speaking with the ABC about doing the podcast, I I was really nervous and really reluctant in the beginning. I was like, I really don't know anything about that world and I'm kind of scared because then, you know, you go on iTunes and you, I I try to listen to as many podcasts as I can and there's so many different styles and so many different sort of arcs, yeah, and formats and that was kind of terrifying for me going, how do I take this and actually 
put it in this format. But yeah, it was a it was a challenge that I'm glad I, I took up. That says something very nice about you. Very modest, obviously. My reaction to listening to Serial was to to try and completely copy it. So, um, (laughs) together with one of our reporters, Yoni Bashana, we made a podcast about connected cold case murders in Bondi, and you know, cut it ourselves. It was very amateurish, and it was a complete homage to Serial. But one of the challenges for us, and I'd be interested to know what you guys think about it, was that the editor of our newspaper insisted that we tell the whole story in print on the first day that the podcast was launched. He didn't want the traditional paper readers, who were never going to go to iTunes, probably don't even know what it is, to lose out and didn't want the paper to become a giant ad for a podcast. Podcasting is bringing media organisations together in a way that's never happened before, you know, all arms of organisations supposedly working together. Can we talk about the challenges of trying to marshal different arms of a media organisation to promote and support a podcast while still maintaining some element of suspense or more intrigue? It's a really good point and I'm working on another podcast at the moment and I'm finding that's the greatest challenge is trying to pitch the story And I'm getting feedback, you know, oh, but that's just, you're being a big tease. It's like, well, you can't reveal everything because people aren't going to then want to continue to listen. So it's a very different medium, a podcast from a print story. And obviously for a print story, you need a newsy lead. And sometimes you don't, at the beginning, have something that's the immediate story. And it takes time to develop. So you almost have to wear different hats when you're podcasting. You have to think about, okay, so how do we tell the story in a print format that's still going to be interesting, which is completely different from when you're listening to it and you're hearing different voices and introducing music and sound effects. So it it is, it's a huge challenge. How do you do it, Marianne? How do you support the podcast in the magazine or on your online platforms? The magazine does delve into some detail, but of course we do sort of reserve quite a bit for those audiences who do listen to the podcast just because it gives the podcast audience to those who buy New Idea magazine. I mean, it it was a natural progression for New Idea to go into the podcast medium because, as we said before, true crime enthusiasts and those who read New Idea magazine were women. And they still, at the end of the day, want a good yarn, you know, like we all do. We all want to tell and share and hear a good story. So... We're found in the infancy that the podcast is in now that it is, while we can certainly cover the stories that we've been doing in the podcast, we're almost reserving a separate little audience for those people to listen to the podcast and get extra details and information about the case that you will not read about. And I think to try and sort of keep it separate it keeps it quite interesting because those who are listening to the podcast are doing so for a reason and the draw card to that is the fact that you can do it in your own time and you can multitask and I think when you're in your zone that you are open to these stories and podcasts being a different medium people have to visualize as you were saying before Claire they do need to put themselves into that situation while they're listening but when they're in their own time they're taking so much more on so we find giving the the audience that are listening to the podcast more information than those reading about it it seems to be working in our favor. Alan, you're breaking down barriers in, within the ABC, I can tell. And, and I, I noticed that you did a, a long-form online piece with the podcast that gave away the whole thing, really. Yeah. When did you publish that? At the end or at the beginning? So it was published at the beginning. Yep. That was the hardest thing, I think, for us. Is So just Unravel, the podcast, is part of uh, an initiative by the ABC to do true crime podcasts after Trace last year, which was amazing. And so coming on board, it was always a multi-platform project. So it was always a TV component, 
the podcast was central, but then there was a digital output as well. So the hardest and, and news, working with news. So the hardest thing was figuring out what content goes where and when it should go. So there was a lot of back and forth, lots of very long, tense meetings about <laughs> what goes out when and the Australian story, which, you know, the air date on that, there was a lot of tossing and turning because we hadn't put the pot out. So we were revealing a lot of stuff in that and the what, long read as well. When so. did you put the Australian story to it? So the Australian story went out, it was two parts. It coincided with Ep 1 and 2. So it kind of covered both weeks, but... Pretty much it was all there. I don't think it's been detrimental to our podcast audience because in a way there's a lot of very different people who wouldn't necessarily watch Australian Story and maybe some of the Australian Story audience wouldn't necessarily know what, you know, be podcast listeners. So we've actually like been able to tap into those different markets and give them something, but driving it all back to the podcast and we've seen spikes sort of at the end of our story, a lot of people subscribing, the long read has a lot of detail in it so people who listen to the podcast often then go back and look at that retrospectively but yeah there was a lot of um yeah like figuring out when and and then working with news because i'm a news and current affairs journalist so as we were investigating things were happening on the road that were very newsworthy but figuring out whether or not we should put them out you know on the 7 p.m bulletin or do an online piece and holding off on a lot of that for the podcast so yeah, lots of I, moving parts. The the team who made Serial, I think, as I'm sure you guys all, all know, the second big worldwide smash hit that they made was S-Town, which I think, if I'm not wrong, was all the episodes lobbed on the same day, didn't they? And you could download, you could binge it if you mm. wanted to. Yeah. Is that right? Does anyone know if I'm wrong? Yeah, but is that right? Yeah. And <coughs> RTV was on the blink at the time, so we spaced it out. It was like the Blitz. You know, we listened to <laughs> one episode a night, you know, <laughs> sitting over our mugs of cocoa at home. <coughs> but how do you get that? pacing right um, maybe Marianne you could start talking about this you know often in an interview someone might start your first question might elicit the answer that you actually structurally think should be at the end of the interview how do you try and structure your interviews and podcasts to make them work we're trying different ways but what I've found to be most effective is a recap in the very beginning just to have those in the, the listeners interested in the story so there's a recap at the top end that doesn't give you the detail but it certainly allows you into the story if you like and it embraces you to to join us and stay with us and then I tend to go back particularly lately just with a couple of victims of crime have been children and and young adults and I have found by interviewing family members it's often better if they can start from the beginning and they tell us who their loved one was because as a listener you know again not having that visual medium it allows the listener to imagine that little child who had bright red hair and beautiful blue eyes and you can picture that person and you are moving along on that timeline as to who they became today and then what happened to them and then you're drawing genuine empathy because people are already involved. They can see that little person and then they, you know, you... And, and in Emma's case, you know, that was, a, again, a, a young, lovely, beautiful girl who, you know, then took a different path in life, you know, and you're feeling that journey. So I've tended to sort of recap, go back to the beginning, let us forge a relationship with them and the listener and then we talk about what's happened and then it goes into detail. And if we go into another episode, we pick up with a little recap of the previous episode with more detail and obviously see you know when there's distressing content we sort of take that into account too but 
In Blood on the Tracks, Alan, it, you know, the first episode, I think, was it, it was pretty heavy from the start. You know, it was you, you didn't give anyone a, a gentle sort of run up to the, <laughs> you know, it was quite yeah. a, an arresting scene, wasn't it? Why did you decide to do that? Well, yeah, I thought actually it wasn't enough. <laughs> but that, I think that's because – I think that's the thing is I've been working on it on and off for five years and I came to sort of ABC with uh, a mountain of stuff and I'd already reported a lot of things. So I wanted it – I guess what I, I wanted Unravel to focus on new stuff. So it was almost like we had sort of a, a window of opportunity in the first three or four eps to cover historical stuff and, and stuff that had been reported if people were following the case already, but try and, um, you know, kind of explore it in a different way and then get to my current investigation. So listening to it back, it does sound heavy. And, you know, originally, because when we sat down, it was a completely different way of working and Tim Roxborough, our supervising producer, was quite amazing and we'd plotted out pretty much sort of what we wanted to see in seven episodes and they were pages and pages of sort of what they call beats or points, story points. Is this before you'd gone out to do the yeah, recording? Yeah, so it's when, we, when I started. So basically we started to pull together episode breakdowns and sort of say what is the biggest story here. I think after about episode four we didn't look at the rest because everything was just happening <laughs> on location and, and, you know, and things were happening in real time. But, yeah, I think I just wanted to, in that first step, the first three episodes, just pull out, I think, two or three key points and just focus on those and give voice to not more than two or three people. So in one, you hear a lot about the scene and Glenn Bryant, who was the first person at the train tracks who saw Mark. And he's never spoken before, so I really wanted to focus on that. At the same time, very heavy stuff. But just by focusing on one or two key characters, I think in the later episodes it really um, pays off mm. because people have already, you know, kind of figured out what these people look like, who, you know, whether they're connected to them or not, have empathy for them. And so, yeah, so the first three or four kind of like crystallised sort of retrospective stuff. How did you handle the taboo around using the name of, of a dead Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person? I will obviously ask the family, but I've, I've spent so much time with Mark's family now. They feel like my family. I say that in the podcast. And I, th- I think I'm really upfront about that relationship. But I asked them whether or not, you know, we should use a pseudonym or some other name. And they were happy for me to put his name out there because, you know, they really want justice. So they're like, we want to put Mark's name out there and say he deserves justice. So it, it was a conversation we had very early on. And then... Other cultural things later on, you know, everything was in consultation with the family. How did you structure Eight Minutes, Nicole, and how did it evolve from that, what I thought, I expect you thought was going to be a few simple, fairly simple phone calls? Yeah, Yeah, I think my experience is a little bit different. We never, I never intended this story to become a podcast. It was going to be a long-form story. I was working on a series of cold cases and after I met the family and we sat down, it was a really hot day, I remember. It's always quite an agonising situation when you're sitting with a victim's family. You have to very quickly earn their trust and let them know why you want to do the story and what your intention is for them to share such a, a horrible ordeal with you. So when I sat down and I was chatting with them, I said, look, do you mind if I record this just for my own notes, make sure that I get all the facts correct? And after, yeah, an hour and a half of talking with both of them... This is mum and dad? This is mum and dad, yeah. I just felt like they're the very best 
people to tell the story, the things that they were telling me about the police investigation, what they had gone through, how they were really fighting for, for some answers. It really compelled me to, to work on this, to dig deeper, to help them find some answers. And it evolved from there. And I think the way I structured the podcast was really my experience in investigating that. It was what was being told to me. And it's quite chronological, I think, the, the way that it, it's produced and the way it was created. It was what I was finding out, what I was discovering, what was happening with the investigation. And I felt like the pace of it really, I guess, in a way, is a little bit like a story. I had to think about, well, you can't have these huge, big, long voice grabs. When you're writing a story, you have a short sentence and then a long sentence. And, you know, you want to have some rhythm to it. And it's the same with a podcast. You want to keep people interested in listening and mix it up and not just have me narrating everything, but make sure that all the voices are heard. I'm going to ask these guys one more question and then I'll open the floor to questions. One of the reasons I think podcasting is a fantastically democratic thing that's going to encourage new journalistic voices is that it reveals really how, you know the, the nuts and bolts of what we do. And it also reveals how seldom we get any cooperation from police, for example, on stories like this. And I think that's something that, that, that all of us would talk about. What happens when the police just won't take your call? How do you give balance? Maybe, Alan, you could start with that. Oh. <laughs> I mean, my relationship with the police has virtually been non-existent, I think, up until sort of the last few months. So for five years, I've been putting in requests and constant requests for interviews, response to very specific allegations. I mean, and, and if, you, if you don't know Mark's case, a lot of my reporting before this was focused primarily on the initial investigation and whether the police did everything they could have and, and whether race played a role in their investigation. It was 1988, it was country, New South Wales. There's a Royal Commission into deaths in custody at the time with institutionalised racism within the force. So the police dropped the ball numerous times in the beginning and I was able to prove that. I think I'm not, sh you know, and that was in the 80s. And so we've got this new modern police force, very removed from that period, who were still reluctant to speak with me and the family were also not getting communication from them. And so they were frustrated as well because they just didn't know what was happening with the case. So it was actually sort of in the end lobbying a lot with Mark's uncle, Don Craigie, to get meetings with the detective to figure out where it's at. And then David Shoebridge, the Greens MP, New South Wales Greens MP, also got involved and started to reach out to the police commissioner and the superintendent at the Oxley Local Area Command in Tamworth. And then eventually things started to happen. And so then there was communication between the family and the police, but not so much with myself. And that's frustrating because a lot of trying to be balanced, you have a lot of people saying a lot of derogatory things or a lot of you know, really big allegations against the police and you want that response, you know, it's your obligation to, to give them an opportunity. But often I would send off very detailed sort of questions and saying these are specific allegations and often we just get back a um, response saying, you know, this is an ongoing investigation, call Crime Stoppers if you have information. So, but this year there was a turning point and I really feel like it was just in, in January I... So for the last, just context, for the last few years, I was working with the family to try and get a reward by the police and that was announced in January this year. 
And that sort of marked a turning point in the relations with the police. And, and since then, there is a detective on it full time, which is great news. And that, that's the first time in maybe 25 years that's happened. And, and finally, sort of having dialogue with them, which just feels, you know, really refreshing after such a long sort of struggle to get them to listen to me. And I felt frustrated, so I couldn't imagine how the family felt for, for pretty much 30 years, mm. having their concerns fall on deaf ears. So, yeah, that, that, it was hard to navigate that. You know, often you go to police media and send numerous requests. You know, just in the end, you know, I feel like I was being a nuisance because every two days... Just checking where this is at, you know. Yeah. Marianne, one of the, the, the sort of unifying things about grieving people is that they usually feel that the police haven't done everything they could. And, of course, as we're not police. We don't really know. I wouldn't know how to investigate a crime. It's often difficult to tell, isn't it, mm. whether things have been done properly or not. How do you walk that line? I always try and contact the police because it's – at least I know then at the end of the day that I've also tried to assist the family and the story itself. But unfortunately it is a very common thread that we aren't really getting the help from the police. And I think it was um, – initially I thought perhaps they're a little bit wary about podcasts. You know, they're not quite sure where this platform is actually taking everybody. So I, I do try and, yes, I do get the response on the email saying, you know, we'll be in touch should there be any further further developments in the case. But it's very difficult because when you listen to a family talking about the fact that sometimes they too haven't heard from the police in years and so you you'd almost try to step in as that third party and reach out to the police saying it's not just me who wants to chat to you. The family would love to hear whether or not there is actually anything going on with the case because communication of any kind is vital for a family who agrees or who are in limbo, which is a lot of these families are. It's an ambiguous loss for a lot of these families, particularly if they haven't got their loved one's remains. If a body hasn't been found and it's the family of a missing person, they're yearning for somebody to listen to their story and they're almost begging for information. So I do try and reach out and we, we, we run with what we, we end up getting mm. in the end, whether that's that police statement. And we do just keep trying and go back and chase stories after we've even done the podcast just to see if there's been any developments developments. Nicole, what did you learn along the way of making eight minutes about about police and their responses and what you expected and what happened? Yeah, so much. I've, I've learnt, I think that um, this experience has really pushed me as a journalist. I can understand where the police are coming from. I get that they've got a job to do and we've got a job to do. A lot of the pushback I got, obviously like you're saying, is the victims' families, they want answers. The police would explain to me that obviously if they release too much information that possibly one of the people of interest, we may be exposing information that they want to hold back and we don't want to jeopardise any future court cases. Or So it's a very fine line trying to work with them. How much can we release? And I think that I'm, I am hopeful that we're going to have a better relationship with them and obviously this medium is growing and it's only getting more popular. So it's really our job as journalists to try and push as hard as we can and get the proof as well. What are these allegations that the victims, family and friends have got? Like how much can we provide the police and how much are, is in the public interest for us to share? So I'd like to thank you all very much for coming. It's really wonderful that you've made it. And thanks for making it such a lively conversation. Thanks to our fantastic panellists um, and congratulations for the work that you've done. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about new episodes as well as events and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, why not take a moment to rate us? This podcast is produced with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time.